TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. The Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. We're back. Hour number two. Bob Cordaro with you. The eponymous show continues. We're honoring Jim Bolzoni of Scranton. Passed away February 10th. United States Navy, World War II, and uh, spent a great career with Sukkul Electronics after that. And uh, we honor him today for his service and his family. And we thank him. So this is an anniversary and a big one. And that's when we bring in the big guns like Rick Bigelow, to talk about Iwo Jima, which began on February 15th. Our friend Tony Julian was there. Rick Bigelow, welcome once again. We love having you on. Uh, Just uh, fire away, my friend. Okay, will do, Bob. Uh, Glad to be on with you. Uh, So let's set it up, um, talking about Iwo Jima. By the, uh, by the fall of 1944, we'd uh, taken the Gilberts, the Marshall Islands, the Carolines, and had swung north to the Marianas, which is Guam and Saipan and Tinian. And our big B-29 bombers were stationed in the Marianas and Guam and Saipan. And it was only about 1,500 miles from there to Tokyo, but right in the middle of that 1,500-mile trip, uh, there, there were no uh, U.S. bases that could provide support, uh, was the island of Iwo Jima, which the Japanese had, and they had two airstrips on there. So the, uh, the American flyers in the B-29s would uh, get up and, and uh, head towards uh, Tokyo, and when they got close to Iwo Jima, they would be attacked by fighters and, and uh, bombers, from uh, from Iwo Jima, so we knew we had to take Iwo Jima. We had to have that, had to get those uh, Japanese fighters out of the out of the way, and also provide an interim uh, spot for uh, planes that uh, were damaged or had engine problems or something like that, so they could land and, and be taken care of. So we decided that we were going to take Iwo Jima, and the interesting thing about this is. We grossly underestimated how many uh, Japanese were on Iwo Jima. And the reason for this is the Japanese had very skillfully uh, dug all kinds of uh, tunnels and 
and uh, installed all sorts of pillboxes and so on and so forth and camouflaged them. So, I mean, usually what would happen is we'd Rick, Rick Bigelow, let me ask, let me, let me ask a question. Uh, uh, Tony Julian, who was there, said that there were caves uh, to the right of his landing area. Were they natural caves, or were those something that the Chinese or the Japanese constructed? Some were natural. I mean, Iwo Jima is just this volcanic island, and there was very little, very few trees or scrub brush or anything like that. So it was a lot of uh, volcanic rock, and there were some caves there. But the Japanese had built more, and I think the incredible thing was they built 11 miles of tunnels under mm. the island where a lot of these pillboxes uh, were interconnected. And, and, the, they, build, they dug, and the, the, the island's only eight square miles itself. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah. I think it's like five miles long and at its widest point maybe two miles wide. And, of course, the, uh, the dominating feature was Mount Suribachi, which was in the uh, the southwest corner of the island, and the Japanese had heavily fortified that. And you know, some of the tunnels and and caves that they dug were were seventy five feet underground. Uh, so what would happen is during the night the Japanese would uh, come out and do what they needed to do on the island, and during the day, especially when uh, reconnaissance aircraft would go over they would uh, disappear back into the, the tunnels and caves. And uh, we, for that reason, we really underestimated how many Japanese were on the island. And, of now, course, you, we had it, no knowledge. Pardon me? Rick, if you know this, was who, who possessed uh, the volcano islands and Iwo Jima in particular before the war? J- Japan did. Japan had had so this for was, okay. years. Okay, so that this, was this their was, island. Yeah, this was this was home territory for them, and this this was actually the first time that we were going after an island that had been Japanese for many many years. So they they had uh, about twenty one thousand troops on Iwo Jima. We thought maybe there were five or ten thousand or something like that. Uh, we knew we had to take it eight months before the invasion. We started. Uh, periodic uh, naval bombardment and aerial bombardment of the island to soften it up and also to check out their defenses. And to their credit, they held their fire. <laughs> they they hmm. didn't uh, they didn't reveal where their their gun positions were and so on and so forth. So uh, on about uh, February 15th, that's when a three day naval bombardment started. Uh, the, the Marines wanted a 10-day naval bombardment, but the Navy couldn't support that, so they had to restrict it to three days. But mm. in, in that three days, they put something like 2,000 tons of ordnance onto the island. It's not 2,000 shells. It's 2,000 tons of, mm. of shells onto the island. Amazing. But the Japanese were dug in so deep, and their tunnel uh, system was so intricate that unless there was a direct hit on a cave opening or a tunnel or a pillbox, uh, it it was of very little impact. And these uh, were not smart. These were not smart bombs either. No, no. These were these were random. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and and uh, you know we 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 couldn't really see 
uh, where they were. So they, we were just firing blindly into the island. Now, of course, we knew that Suribachi was heavily uh, heavily defended, and there were a lot of uh, emplacements on there. There was a lot of artillery, and there was a radar station up there. And one of the things about the Iwo Jima was when our B-29s would fly over, they'd be detected by the Japanese radar, and they'd, uh, they'd call ahead to Tokyo and say, expect an attack in about two hours. So yeah. we had to get rid of that, too. So there, there are several very good reasons for uh, going into Iwo Jima. So we, so we, we need that emergency Let, what, Go ahead. Why don't, why don't we take, let's take our break here. Uh, we'll do some commercials, come back with a little historical highlight of the day, and then we'll come back and you could talk, tell us about the actual assault on Iwo Jima. We're talking with Rick Bigelow. He is our official uh, Far East historian, uh, Far East military historian, and it's the attack of Iwo Jima started this date 1944 we'll be back the beatles released their hit single eight days a week this date february 15th 1965 and johnny played you a clip from the daytona 500 the great american race which will take place this sunday uh from 1998 when dale Earnhardt senior won his first and only race he dies two years later. And I don't know why, because I'm not a huge race fan. I was watching the race where he was killed. And it seemed like a fairly standard crash. Remember, he went straight into the wall, Dale Earnhardt Sr. Just straight into the wall, but it didn't seem like he was going at a top speed. And he was dead. And his son in 2004, Dale Hart Earnhardt Jr., wins the Great American Race on the same date as his father had in 1990, his late father had in 1998. That, that's great stuff. That is really great stuff. Uh, speaking of great stuff, Mary Regina sent me the February 15th uh, for Mother Teresa, St. Teresa. St. Teresa says, what can you do to promote world's peace? Go home and love your family. <laughs> Pretty good place to start, right? Well, we're talking with Rick Bigelow, and I misspoke. I said 1944, but February 15, 1945, Tony Julian and his compatriots are part of this invasion of the critical island of Iwo Jima. You've set the stage very well. Tell us about the actual assault, uh, Rick. Okay. Uh, the Japanese had assigned uh, Lieutenant General Kurabayashi to lead the defense of Iwo. Uh, when he got to Iwo, he wrote a letter back to his wife and said, don't expect me to come home. <laughs> uh, he, he knew uh, it was going to be a fight to the death. He uh, in, inspired his troops to fight to the death, to look upon their cave or pillbox or uh gun emplacement as being their the place that they would die <coughs> and rick so rick, question um was this was the first time the japanese were defending their own homeland so we had to anticipate that the fighting was going to be on another level right well the closer we got to japan the tougher the fighting became 
So that's why we we knew we needed a, a big uh, naval and air bombardment, and and we started uh, eight weeks before the actual uh, invasion uh, with daily uh, bombardments, and then a three days of massive bombardment began on the fifteenth. Uh, so. After the uh, three days, the, the uh, Marines loaded up, got into their uh, assault vehicles uh, on the 18th, and went into the beaches. When they got to the beaches, there was virtually no opposition. The Japanese had long since given up uh, <clears throat> trying to uh, beat back the Americans at the beaches. So they waited until we got ashore uh, and then started uh, piling uh, material, men, and equipment up on the shore, and then they opened up. So we attacked, <coughs> pardon me, we attacked with uh, 60,000 Marines, and there were another uh, 50,000 sailors and and uh, Army personnel on the ships waiting in reserve. Uh, there were over 500 ships, all kinds of battleships, cruisers, carriers, etc., etc., uh, we thought we'd uh, take the island in less than a week, but because of the defenses that the Japanese had built up, it was very, very slow going. And like Tony Julian said, they were pinned down on the beach as as soon as uh, they got onto the beach and moved up a little bit. There were uh, ledges <coughs> that they, they had to climb, and because of the volcanic ash, they couldn't really get a, a good grip onto the beaches. It wasn't like sand. They, yeah. they bogged down in this uh, volcanic ash. And the, the Japanese had uh, pre-sighted uh, all their weapons, and uh, there, there was murderous crossfire all the way uh, on the beach up under the ledges. Our, our first objective was to capture Mount Suribachi because uh, they controlled everything from Suribachi. And then the second objective was to get to the first airfield. Uh, we were able to cross the island at its uh, narrowest point. Uh, we had Marines attacking from the east and from the west, and we isolated the Japanese troops on Mount Suribachi. By the second day, uh, we got and controlled airfield number one. So with fierce fighting, and it was just incredible fighting, uh, we finally captured Suribachi on February 23rd, <coughs> and that's what where the uh, flag raising takes place. Actually, there were two flag raisings. Uh, there was a small flag that went up, and uh, as soon as that happened, uh, all the, the Marines and the sailors and everybody saw it, and they thought it was over, thought the battle was over. And uh, a little bit later, they brought up a bigger flag, and that's where the famous picture of uh, the uh, Marines raising the flag on Mount Suribachi uh, which is the basis for the Marines Memorial in Arlington. Uh, so there were there were two flag raisings, uh, and even though taking Suribachi was significant and there had been hard fighting, and there were something like a thousand Marine fatalities on the first uh, four or five days, but the real tough fighting was yet to come as we moved uh, north and eastward along the island. Hmm. Amazing. <laughs> So well, Rick, the, we're going to take a break for some commercials and the weather, and then I want you to we'll, we'll give the conclusion to the Iwo Jima assault. 
by the Americans uh, in World War II in uh, February into March of 1945. We'll take this break. We'll come back with the weather and then Rick Bigelow. Here's the Storm Tracker 16 forecast from meteorologist Ali Gallo. Today, clouds to start, then an afternoon sun, breezy, high of 60. Tonight, cloudy, low 48. Tomorrow, cloudy early, then a steadier rain in the afternoon, breezy, high of 60. Friday, early rain, falling temperatures, high of 50 overnight, with temperatures falling during the day into the 30s. Then Saturday, temperatures starting off at around 18 degrees, but that day it'll be sunny with a high of about 42. Bob Cano back with you. This is the Club for, Club for Common Sense. We do provide a sanctuary of sanity for you. And we like to think we provide history and information each day we do this thing. And we're joined by Rick Bigelow, who is our Far East uh, military historian. And we're talking about the conquest of Iwo Jima, the Battle of Iwo Jima. So we're, Rick Bigelow, we're on Mount Suribachi, which is absolutely critical to take the island, but we're not done yet. Take it from there. Yeah, you're right. Um, <clears throat> we thought that uh, once Suribachi was taken, the rest of the island would uh, fall quickly, but that didn't happen. <clears throat> we had to slowly move up the island um, and take each individual pillbox and cave. And because these pillboxes and caves were interconnected with tunnels, we'd, we'd take a pillbox, figure everybody was dead or, or captured, and we'd move up. And then all of a sudden we'd get uh, fire from the same pillbox uh, because Japanese had come uh, through the tunnels and reoccupied a pillbox. That happened hundreds of times. Uh, during the attack. Uh, and so, I mean, the the Marines got very little sleep. It was brutal combat uh, day by day, hour by hour, and uh, they they had to stay awake all the time. And the, uh, the mental fatigue that the Marines uh, suffered was tremendous. And there, there were a lot of what they called uh, combat fatigue casualties where they, they had to go back and uh and go to the the medics and uh you know get some rest and then go back up on the line mm. uh so it took uh 26 <clears throat> it took about five weeks for us to uh to take the whole island and and finally on march 26 of uh, 1945 iwo was declared secure uh the marines packed up and left and the army's 147th infantry took over for the Marines. The 147th was there mostly as garrison troops, but there were still thousands of Japanese in the caves, tunnels, and bunkers. So the 147th Infantry spent the next three months rooting out all the uh, the Japanese that were still in the caves, tunnels, and bunkers. The that, last that's hard. Jap that is hard, dangerous work going yeah, into those tunnels. Wow. Absolutely. In, in fact, they'd there were a lot of uh, Japanese Americans who were interpreters and they would go to the cave mouth or somewhere where they could talk to the Japanese and try to convince them to uh, surrender. If they didn't surrender, you know, we, we'd uh, kill them with a satchel charge or grenades or something like that, or flamethrowers. It was brutal. 
The, now, uh, were we last... were we using Rick Bigelow? Were we using the uh, airstrip at this point? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, about uh, a week after the initial uh, assault, uh, a uh, B twenty nine had been damaged over Tokyo, and uh, it it requested uh, permission to land, make an emergency landing on Iwo Jima, and uh, it was granted, and it came down and and uh, repaired the plane, took off, and went back to Saipan. Uh, and over the next uh, several weeks and months, uh, over a 1,000 uh, B-29s were uh, allowed to land at, uh, at Iwo Jima and, you know, save thousands of American flyers. Uh, but talking about the... Uh, the Japanese, the last Japanese soldier surrendered in 1949 on Iwo Jima, almost four years after the war ended. They became experts at sneaking out of their caves and tunnels at night, stealing stuff from the soldiers, and going back uh, into their caves, and they just couldn't find them all. Uh, only a couple hundred actually uh, gave up and uh, surrendered. Uh, something like 18,000 Japanese were killed on Iwo Jima. Uh, and most of the, the Japanese that surrendered weren't really Japanese. They were Korean slave laborers. Uh, this was the worst casualties and fatalities that the Marines suffered uh, in any battle in, in World War II. Something like 6,800 uh, U.S. Marines were killed and 20,000 were wounded. Uh, this was the first time that um, American uh, casualties, which includes killed and wounded, was greater than the Japanese uh, killed and wounded. Uh, this just showed how tough it was going to be the closer we got uh, to Japan. Uh, so at, by uh, towards the end of uh, March, it was pretty well uh, buttoned up, except for the, uh, the Japanese stragglers that we found. And Iwo Jima became an important uh, way station uh, for American flyers and an emergency landing strip. Plus, we put uh, fighters in there that could uh, accompany the, the B-29s on the way up to, uh, to Japan. So that's kind of it. Uh, wow. It was a colossal battle. Uh, it, the one bad thing about Iwo Jima, it wasn't going to be large enough uh, to stage for the invasion of Japan so we knew we had to find another spot, and that other spot was Okinawa. Uh, we we went into Iwo with a hundred thousand. We went into Okinawa with two hundred thousand. Uh, it just got tougher and tougher the closer we got to the Japanese home islands. Will we get to that this this year? What what were the dates on that one? Uh, that was Okinawa. in April. Uh, so right. we'll talk about that in April. But uh, I think. Probably the next thing I'd like to talk about would be uh, the movement up the Solomon Islands chain uh, and then some uh, some discussion of the campaign in New Guinea, which uh, uh, really a lot of Americans don't know about. So I think that'd be worth uh, discussing. would love that. Uh, Rick Bigelow, thank you so much for... <sighs> a stem-to-stern look at, at this Battle of Iwo Jima, which took us a month and a half, and 6,800 dead, uh, 20,000 wounded. I mean, th th these are staggering numbers that we've... 
we can't even imagine them at this stage. We really can't. And uh, we hope and pray that something like this won't have to happen in uh, the Asian theater again. But uh, uh, important to reflect on, to me, what was uh, essentially the communist Chinese empire of today in that era, the Japanese empire. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Rick Bigelow. We'll talk to you very soon. You tell me when, and we, we've got a place for you. That's for sure. We appreciate your history. We appreciate your knowledge. Rick Bigelow, we'll be back. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. February 15, 1969, they released their hit single, You Made Me So Very Happy. And I, I do. I really love Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Now, somebody texted in. Bob, I sent you info on my uncle, John Max Tudis, a while ago. I hope I'm saying that right, about his fighting at Iwo Jima. I don't recall getting it, and it could clearly be my fault. Could you send it to me again? We'd love to pay tribute to him, particularly within this time frame when the fighting was going on at Iwo Jima. Uh, Robert Dot. Cordaro, C-O-R-D-A-R-O, at odyssey.com. And then W-I-L-K, if you want to do snail mail, uh, it's W-I-L-K, Route 315, Pittston Township. What is it, Johnny? Why do I keep forgetting this? 18640? Yeah, 18640. So please send me the information on your uncle, I'd love to pay tribute to him on a day within the time frame, we have till March 29th, that uh, he was fighting on Iwo Jima. I, you can't even capture. Even with, I, you, it's so hard to capture the brutality of it. Imagine the most brutal war movie you've ever seen. Imagine noise that is literally splitting your eardrums of all kinds and from all directions. In front of you, behind you, at each side. And these young men just kept plunging ahead. It's, it's, it's remarkable what Americans have done. And then we look at this disgraceful uh, leadership class. <laughs> I, I, you can't call them leadership class. They're, they're, they're people who are leading us. And you just say, we've gone from John Max Tutis and Tony Julian to Joe Biden. I, I, it's, it's incomprehensible. We always had people like that. But they were never in charge, or seldom in charge. <sighs> Somebody texted him. Uh, in Russian, Stal, Stal means steel. Stalin means man of steel. We also have our own man of steel, S-T-E-A-L. <laughs> the country was hijacked. It's not he who votes, it's he 
who counted the votes. Let us not let that happen again. Bob Cadaro with you. Time for Bloomberg Money Minute. We'll roll on after we hear what's going on in business. Sammy Davis Jr. This was the number one adult charts hit. This date in 1969. And before that, the sentencing of Jeffrey Dahmer. Is that not chilling? Shockingly coherent. I guess you could say almost normal in his speech to the court. Wow. Yes, there is evil among us. By the way, the uh, family of John Maxtutis, and again, I want to make sure I'm saying that right, but John Maxtutis uh, got me the information. I've got, I'm ready to go. Ready to go tomorrow, hopefully. I've, I've asked them. So we're going to have an interview after the top of the hour with Brian Thomas Barrow. He's a Joyzy guy, and he, he was a television producer for Major League Baseball for 30 years. Remember that show, This Week in Baseball? He was involved with that along with my brother, Mike, and that's how I met him. He now has his own production company, Wheelbarrow Productions, and uh, his, best, his best friend is his dog, a French bulldog named Fenway, because he's a, he's a Red Sox fan, just as I am. But Midstation is the book uh, available on Amazon. And uh, we're going to talk about that after the hour. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. And he's an entertaining guy. Uh, <sighs> Soup can says Bob Jeffrey Dahmer, followed by I've Gotta Be Me. That's interesting. I do love Soup Can, the juxtaposition of the uh, music with some of the historical events. Uh, it, I, I like when they don't match up, just like this one. <laughs> but <laughs> scary stuff. Hey, we're honoring today Vincent Anthony Bolzoni, known as Jim, late of Scranton, born in Long Island, United States Navy, World War II, a career at Suckel Electronics in Scranton. And his family, and I just love saying it, came from Sicquafrondi, Sicquafrondi, Reggio, Calabria, Italy. He was Calabrese. We love that. They're called the Testadura, the hardhead, the Calabrese, but I love them. Absolutely love them. Because I'm a hardhead, too. Um, One of our listeners says, when Jeffrey Dahmer said he should have stayed with God, it goes to show you how out of hand your life can become and your thoughts when you don't live a God-centered life. Very important, said Sean from Larksville. Sean, and when a nation leaves its Judeo-Christian roots, leaves its culture that was... Western in orientation and religious in its founding, an entire country could be lost. 
So you're right, Sean. We could take it on the micro with with somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer. At least that was his own analysis. And the devil took over there. We play that great piece, If I Were the Devil. And we do it occasionally. And I, I said, if we had enough time, we'd do it every day. But you could take a country away from its roots. If you take a, a country away from its roots, just like a plant, it will die. And the people who run the show and own the Democrat Party are trying to do just that. False history. No sexual orientation. So that's formable, not by how you're born, but how we indoctrinate you. There are nothing but oppressors who need, I'm sorry, victims who need government force to aid them. And, of course, government leaders to do that. And there are oppressors who need to be put down. I mean, this is the sick, twisted ideology we are getting overtaken by (sighs) amazing so yeah jeffrey dahmer has (laughs) i i just thought it was so chilling that we had to play it but uh nuts right let's and uh, yeah literally well it's time for the news we're gonna come back with brian thomas barrow talking about his book mid station on the bob cadaro show but right now it's paula degna WYLK News Radio. This is the Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love. Hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 